Hello and welcome to the Hooks Baseball Podcast, episode 12. This is Dan Reiner and we've got a great show lined up this week. Coming up, Michael Coffin chats with Houston Astros pitching coach Brent Strom, but first... We start things off with Terrence Kennel, who joined the Astros in 2019 as the Hooks strength and conditioning coach, and this offseason moved to West Palm Beach to become the Astros strength and conditioning rehab coordinator, and most of us around the Hooks and around the Astros organization know him as TK, and TK, my first question to you is uh, that I'd like an honest assessment of your current physical condition, because I know that I'm generally a cardio guy and not having access to treadmills and pools or or spin bikes for three months has definitely hurt my physique. But so what is your assessment on your own uh, physique? It's definitely taking a bit of hits, not being able to like uh, really lift weights. You can only do so many like push-ups and like bodyweight squats and lunges. Uh, I I do enjoy running. So so I've been running probably three to four times a week, like pretty much every other day. It's like pounding pavement, but. I haven't, I haven't taken too bad of a hit, like, fortunately, at least as of right now, anyway, like, things still aren't, aren't aren't fully open yet, so we'll see in, like, a month or so. Yeah, you see, my, my yeah. issue is that I, I'm a runner, too. I like running, but it's it's so hot here now in South Texas, as you know, and mm-hmm. uh, you, with no gyms open, I've kind of been stuck. I've done a few, um, like, yoga Zoom classes, mm-hmm. um, and my girlfriend does, like, those Instagram Live videos, the, the yeah, Instagram yeah. Live workout videos, but I just can't keep up with those. It's really hard to, like, I'm bad with like the hand-eye coordination of of following what's on a screen and <laughs> and doing it at the same time and keeping pace. So, yeah, I've I've like taken into like started stretching a bit more. Like I generally, people who know me, like I just never really stretch. I mean, so I lose tension so fast. Like it's so bored after like five ten minutes. So I've been trying to like making like a thing. I stretch like thirty minutes a day. Like follow like a, a random yoga person on Instagram or. Uh, like on YouTube or something like that and just do a random yoga routine and struggle for 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I, I definitely, uh, you know, need to get back in that groove of, of stretching now that things are starting to open back up and it is beach season and my beach bot is hurting. Um, but uh, so, so the Astros facilities, both Minute Maid Park and the spring training complex um, opened a couple weeks ago. And I know that there have been a few players that have been allowed and uh, I'm sure the schedule is kind of weird and hectic for you and for those players. So what has it been like in the last couple of weeks, you know, getting guys back? Uh, you're at West Palm right now at the Astro mm-hmm. Spring Spring Training Facility, the rehab facility. Um, so so how have the last couple of weeks been for you? Uh, it's been interesting as far as, like, we have the coach in a mask and, like, rubber gloves. Uh, we have the check-in, check-out system as far as, like, this whole symptom check and everything. It's all, like, all has been our hard rules about MLB is not these are the rules you have to follow. Limited number of people in the building at a time. So my boss, Dan Housen, almost like do shifts. So he'll take a morning shift, I'll take an afternoon shift. But it's, it's been good like it's been good like coaching again and like feel like you're doing something because you only do so much of like FaceTime with players and Zoom calls with players and stuff like that. And stuff gets old kinda of quick. So it's nice to be able to like see you guys, see you guys in person, coach, things like that. Even though I have to wear a mask and gloves and I I feel a bit foolish wearing it, but I understand the reasoning. So when you uh, when things get back underway, if and when the season resumes, that is, um, you know, obviously you've been working with guys at the facility now, but only a handful of them. And like you said, you've been working over Zoom and everything too, coaching them up that way. But what kind of shape do you expect the players to be in 
uh, and how much leeway how, or how long a leeway period should fans give them to allow the rust to wear off once the season actually gets underway? Uh, so I could really only speak to like the rehab guys in terms of like the shape I expect them to come in. I prefer to wear, like to err on a side of caution. So rather than kind of assume the worst and then assume the worst, hope for the best. So I assume they're all going to come in really bad and out of shape whenever rehab guys are allowed to return to the facility. But if uh, some guys come in pretty good shape, then like that's always a huge bonus, essentially. But for the sake and sorry, like I kind of use the idea of you can always you can always put the cake back in the oven, but once you burn it, you can never go backwards. So it's like err on the side of caution. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a great analogy. Maybe, yeah, I think maybe fans should give yeah give guys at least at least a month. I think like well, guys get get their feet back into it, stuff like that. Like you have some real realistic expectations. I think for any fans, every team, I think every team's going to be struggling through the same kind of like grace period. I think mean, everyone needs at least four weeks. Yeah, and it's crazy because the later we get into this this period of you know, are they going to play or not? Um, it, it seems like the the amount of time that there will be for a, a sort of spring training is kind of getting less and less. So, you know, even at the beginning when they said it would be three weeks in, in June and then they get into the season in July, a normal spring training is, what, six, eight weeks? So three weeks even, even though they had that spring tra- that brief spring training period, it just seems like three weeks wouldn't really be enough that they would need more time to kind of get into their bodies, and you really just don't know what kind of shape guys are in until you see them in person. Yeah, exactly. Like some guys have like home gyms, some don't. Some guys potentially like in states are able to like or have private places that they that they kind of pay for. You can be able to train like isolated, basically in quarantine. But some guys don't have that, so it's, you just never know kind of what, what you're in for. Like, luckily, nice part is that there have been talks and rumors of like doing extended kind of rosters and. Have I think they turn coin to turn like taxi squad essentially? So things like that I think will help. So you can give guys a lot of rotation, guys can get a lot of reps, but also a lot of rest as well, kind of build them back up. But we'll kind of see if it all if there's an agreement and it all kind of unfolds. Like everyone's kind of waiting in limbo at the moment. Right. So you have a, a pretty interesting background. You came to the Astros from London, England, before the 2019 season. You were the head of rehab at the Richmond Rugby Club. And previously, you were a strength and conditioning performance consultant for the Toshiba Brave Lupus Rugby Club in Tokyo, Japan. And you yourself, by the way, uh, a rugby player, you went to -to back-to-back semifinals in the D1A Rugby Championships while you were a student at Arkansas State. Um, So you know the training that it takes as a rugby player, and you've worked with professional rugby players. So what is the difference between training a rugby or even a football player versus a baseball player when it can, comes to getting in shape? Uh, I think a big one was the general conditioning because like rugby, it's two 40-minute halves. They're just a play, so they'll be like 80 minutes. And um, there are subs, but you get a limited number of subs. I believe it's six subs now. But then just 15 on 15 at a time, you're dealing with things like guys making tackles, getting back up, continuous play. Because it's not like football where it's like a stop and start. They're constantly going. And so their guys have to be ready to play 80 minutes, and their other guys need to play at least you know, 60 or 40. And halftime is only 10 minutes. There's no timeouts within rugby other than like, unless there's an injury. And so some of that conditioning aspect is just like there other, there's a lot more variables going on. There's so much chaos, essentially. It's mm-hmm. chaos and a car crash that you're trying to prepare people for. And also, the nice part is you only play once a week. So you only play on a Saturday or a Friday, usually. That's pretty much it. So you, know, you never play like twice in a week or anything, really. 
what kind of adjustments did you have to make professionally from from going that kind of, from that kind of environment to uh, coming over to the Astros and working with baseball players? Uh, for me, a big learning curve was the fact that I I didn't grow up like a baseball fan, and I just I didn't didn't really watch it. Like no, my family really played it. Um, so just learning the sport was a big one, and learning like kind of like understand the needs analysis of a sport and a difference, the requirements from like a first baseman to a catcher to an outfielder, understanding the nuances of those different positions, understanding the needs of the needs of a pitcher, learning difference between a starter starter and a reliever, and um, you know relievers need need me to throw on back to back days. A starter has five anywhere from five to six, seven days between starts and things like that, and the different kind of approaches or training that are needed. So did you kind of, were you kind of drawn abroad, um, not only because you were a rugby player, but also you came from a military background, right? You, uh, mm-hmm. I read that you were born in Alaska and you lived yeah. in Asia. And so can you kind of give us your back, your background there? Yeah. So for me, like I, one of my other passions in life other than like the strength conditioning is like is traveling. So I love to travel. I love living in other countries, living in different places. Uh, I think it's just a huge way to, to like learn about the world and then, so we just kind of escape and see, see, see and learn so many places and eat new foods and experience different cultures and ideas and things like that, different architecture. Um, and because my mom was in the Army for 22 years, and then it was after that I was in the FBI for a couple of years, we bounced around like a lot. I think I went to seven or eight different like elementary schools uh, as a kid. Like We moved every like year and a half to two years or so for most of my life. Most of my like like adult, I mean young, young all the way through teenage life. So I did experience a lot of things. So because of that, I had this like fervor for traveling. So I like love to travel. Mm-hmm. I spent this past off season uh, traveling to a couple different countries in Europe and stuff like that that I didn't get a chance to go to when I was living in London. Nice. And do you, as a sports fan, do you ever get when you're traveling? Do you stop? Because I know for me, you know, if I ever go to say a foreign country or even a uh, a city in the U.S. that I, or a state that I've never been to, I like you know every baseball fan that tries to get the all thirty stadiums on their bucket list. Is that kind of something for you, where you seek out you oh, know maybe yeah. a sporting event? Or? Yeah, definitely. If I can see, if I can get to a sporting event, at least try to get to the stadium. Or like lucky enough about like strength condition, it's it's big enough but small enough where you can kind of reach out to some people. Like when I went to Barcelona for the first time, I presented there, but I got to. Um, Walk around like FC Barcelona. I got to see their training ground, um, see their entire like academy system they have there in, in Spain. Went to the stadium as well. Like met a few players. Like, it was really cool. I'm a, bit, I'm like, a pretty big soccer fan, so I was like, that was awesome to even present at FC Barcelona and then like walk around the whole facility and the whole ground. It's massive. That's awesome. Yeah, it yeah. sounds like a great time. And so you know, it's like a dream for a sport fan and a, a strength and conditioning guy for sure. Yeah, I'm lucky enough. I found something I really enjoy that allows me to wear shorts and sweatpants every day. But then also get to like go to some cool stadiums and meet some really cool people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've lucked out in that. And way. work with world class athletes too, you know. Yeah. Along yeah. the way. Yeah. Icing on the cake. Yep. So you obviously have a diverse background, and we'll wrap things up here. I wanted to touch on the last couple of weeks here in the U.S. and really worldwide, but stemming from the events that uh, transpired in Minnesota. You know, you are a black man working in the sports industry, and I see that you're active on social media, and, you know, you work with uh, players of color every day for your job. And what has stood out to you the most from the past week of, of protests and activism that you've seen, you know, whether it's in Florida, 
or you know in Minnesota or in Houston, wherever it may be. Uh, I think the big ones has always been like a beautiful thing to see, just seeing like the unity of it, and that even though the slogan is and needs to be like 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 Black Lives Matter, but it's been like you see people from all over the country and all over the world, like all different ethnic backgrounds, given skin colors, like all marching for like just one idea. One idea is try to end this like end this thing of, of like police brutality and seeing videos of people protesting in Japan, seeing people protesting in Brussels, Denmark, I have friends who were, who were at protests in London and Spain and stuff who like sent me videos of them at a protest. It's just like, that was like, actually honestly, it made, made me tear up a bit even like watching these videos of people like all over the world, like seeing how people actually care and people uniting for one thing. I think people have an idea that we are like, countries like divided and people always spread this rhetoric of like our country's divided. But it's like, no, like, we're actually not as divided as people like to think and people like to sell. And like maybe like a lot of media we're actually quite united on, like, we also can be united on one front. Like, we're a country of 340 million people, and there's been protests in all 50 states, <laughs> which is just, like, pretty, which is pretty insane to see. It's something mm-hmm. that we haven't seen in a long time, something potentially on this scale you may, like, we may never see again. And so I think we're all living through a, a huge moment in history that almost we really, like, almost hard to be in it. It's hard to fully grasp it. They want you to, like, kind of take a step back and, like, wow, this is actually, like, an amazing time. Amongst that, there's a pan- there's a pandemic with coronavirus, and everyone's been stuck in a house for <laughs> two months, two plus months. Right. It'll it'll be crazy to see how the history books write this year, and yeah. how we reflect on things. I think like you, you brought up a good point about just you almost can't fully grasp it, and I think that the the year or two uh, after this will take a lot of reflection from everyone, from the media to the politicians to us you know, regular folks, how we handle things and, and what actually happens if there is any kind of reform. Because uh, obviously we, in the two weeks of protests, we've already seen a lot of uh, local governments and state governments reforming the way that they handle things at, you know, the police level. And I'm sure, um, you know, things will continue to change as, as um, you know, the activists do take to the streets and, you know, things get done yeah. that way. I think a nice thing to see as well has been like, I think P- P- at first people were wondering, Oh, what is, like, what are these projects really about? What do people want? But really, in the day, it's like all people just want. They just want accountability, like any like any other job. Like people have to be accountable for like you know their actions, like for their job. I think it's all people are really asking for. Like no one's asking. People aren't asking for anything ridiculous, essentially, and that they want people to be accountable for for like their actions. Understand that the actions have consequences, both positive or negative, kind of. Like, so I think that's been really nice to see and see places like taking action and mayors and governors and with that taking action and people getting out to register to vote things like that because that's where it kind of starts and that's the best way kind of to create change is to get people in your local in your local offices that support ideas and things that you want and yep. not just worry about the president so much so i think people that started a senator and governor and your congressman your mayor your city council and all like almost small things that people kind of forget well, TK, I uh, appreciate your insight on this topic. Um, you know, we hope to keep the conversation going, not only, you know, through this podcast, but whatever it is, social media or, or face-to-face conversations. And, you know, good luck with everything, too, in, in uh, West Palm. Stay safe, you know, keep, keep using those precautions, um, and hopefully we can get these players out on the field pretty soon. Yeah, I hope so. Hi, this is Mike Coffin, and we are chatting with Astros pitching coach Brent Strom here on the Hooks Baseball Podcast. A, a big thrill to have Mr. Strom 
on the show, entering his eighth season as the Astros uh, pitching coach during this current run with the organization. His accolades uh, of late back-to-back-to-back American League West titles, a pair of league pennants, and, of course, the, the first World Series championship to be won by a Texas team back in 2017. Mr. Strom, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, how how are things going for for you these days? I, I know it's a it really is a difficult time in, in so many respects, especially for our country right now. How are you How are you getting along? Well, with everybody, it's 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 difficult to watch all the negativity you see on television and with the virus and then the the, the protests and everything going on and the the death of Mr. Floyd, all the different things that have happened. It's uh, it kind of you know I've uh, I've been walking around on Earth for for quite a while and seen quite a few things and. This is about as as bad as I've seen. I mean, I I can remember being a, a junior in high school on the the day that JFK was was assassinated, and then uh, all the different things that have gone on. And um, it just wants me to get back to baseball, uh, which I love to do. And um, so, you know, hopefully we'll be able to do so. But it's it's been difficult. I've been staying in touch with the pitchers. We've, we've been constantly in communication with our GM and manager. So uh, we're just waiting for something to happen. Well, I, I know that you love to travel, and, and you've been all over the world, all over the country, and I think it's I think it's a unique uh, attribute to folks who who traditionally get away from their hometowns and and get away from their comfort zones and interact with with different people from different backgrounds. And obviously, as a as a pitching coach, you know that's kind of your mo is relating to people who come from from different parts of the world, uh, from different histories. Uh, how, how much of, of traveling has affected you know you and, and how you approach the game and, and just how you approach your neighbor kind of in general? Well, I've been uh, you know the thing is I traveled to Europe, done a lot of baseball clinics in Europe. Uh, baseball has allowed me to go to Asia, Europe, and around this country, and uh, that's the commonality is the baseball has allowed me to uh, be able to uh, to enjoy a lot of different uh, aspects of. Uh, of, of the cultures and the foods and everything. So it's, it's a, just, a, uh, just a, an, additional, an additional caveat to, uh, to what baseball brings. So, um, you know, and, and, I, and I love to share information. I mean, I, I gather information, uh, I borrow information, and, uh, and I pass it on to those that are really, really dedicated to what they're trying to do. Well, you've dedicated 50-plus years to professional baseball. What are you missing most about the game right now? Well, I, I miss the competition. Probably the number one thing is seeing the greatest baseball players in the world on a nightly basis is, is a, lot, a lot of fun. Trying to uh, strategize against the Mike Trouts of the world and and those that we face on a regular basis uh, is is part of the part of the effort. And the problem is, I find myself uh, at times more depressed when we lose than happy when we win. I need to <laughs> kind of enjoy the moment a little bit. You know what I mean? So it's uh, you know we've had so high expectations sure. the last three four years with our team. And a lot of times those those expectations are well, they weigh on you a little bit. And uh, as they say, heavy, heavy, uh, where's the, the head that wears the crown? And uh, so we have to uh, hopefully, if we can get to play, be able to do something good this year. If not, then next year. From reading what, what you've done in your career and how you approach the game, I, I imagine that you're almost competing right now in, in terms of strategizing and, and keeping that communication line open with, open with the players. Have you expanded all in terms of your scouting efforts because there's a chance the Astros would face, for example, all the, the, the West Coast teams or the teams that are in the, in the AL West and the NL West? Has that changed? Or have you used this time maybe to, to develop some of those plans for some of those teams that weren't on your radar initially? 
Well, it's funny you should ask because we do a couple things. We, uh, I've sent out scouting reports to pitchers so they can uh, do facsimile type games against uh, the Mariners. The four, we've done four of them so far where I've sent out all of the American League West uh, opponents and with scouting reports and then pitchers would pitch to that scouting report to, to a catcher uh, in their, in their, at this time. And then we also do uh, weekly things where Dusty Baker and the entire staff, where we develop scenarios and uh, things that uh, to bring Dusty up to speed with the analytics portion of our, of our program we do with Houston. So we'll, you know, we'll, we'll give uh, a situation like uh, you have Crawford Seeger and uh, Vogelbach coming up. You're down by one in the bottom of the eighth. Uh, and you've already used Presley and Davinsky. Who, who do you have up throwing? That kind of stuff. So we play these different kind of like, I hate to use the word war games because sure. I don't want to liken baseball to war, but we play these simulated games that uh, cause you to have to think through things and look at all the different scenarios. So it's, oh, been, fascinating. Uh, it's been ongoing since we've been going, yeah. Can you give us an idea of your, of your interactions with the players and how often you guys communicate? And let's take Chris Davinsky, for example, uh, a fan favorite here in Corpus Christi, one of the, the be, one of the best guys in the game. I imagine he's the type of guy you have to maybe pull back a little bit to make sure he's not doing too much right now. Is that right? Oh, that's very correct. You know, he's um, but he's he's doing much better at that. He's been throwing on a regular basis. You know, you run the you run the gamut. You have the you have the guys that you have to watch, like Davinsky, and, uh, and 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 then you have the medium guys in between, and then you know the other end of things. You have the Zach Grinkies of the world that. Uh, that uh, I've talked to that uh, is staying in tight, is staying with his throwing program, but it's between, uh, you know, he throws a certain speed so many times a week, but knowing Grenke, he just told me, I just need two weeks. I'll be ready to pitch. So, <laughs> and that's I'm all you need to hear from him. And, yeah. 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 He's a man of few words, but uh, this tremendous competitor, great athlete. And so um, I know he'll be ready. JV should be ready. Um, a lot of the, a lot of these guys, this really helped them out in an in a unfortunate way. Uh, guys like um, Peacock is now healthy, and and JV's much getting much better and ready to go. So things are, you know, there's there's some good things that have happened with this, but uh, I think it's time to get back if we're going to be able to salvage anything out of this year. Well, the idea would be to have a, a two, three, three weeks, probably preferably before you know games that count begin. Spring training obviously came to a halt very abruptly. Uh, you mentioned uh, Dusty Baker. You were very productive with, with A.J. Hinch all those years. We talked about all the banners hanging up at Minute Maid Park at the outset of the interview. Uh, what was it like working with Dusty in spring training? Did you find yourself, you, you guys kind of getting into a rhythm there before everything was shut down? Yeah, I, I had competed against Dusty. We're similar similar age, and so I competed against him in the, uh, in the inter- International League uh, when I was with the Mets organization. Dusty was playing for Richmond at the time, Richmond Braves. Uh, his team, I looked at an old scrapbook, uh, the Richmond Braves, the shortstop on Dusty's team was a guy named Tony La Russa. How about that? That was batting second. Yeah. So you had, so Baker led off and La Russa second, a couple of people names that out of the past. But now he's been great. And, you know, I have high, great respect for Dusty. You know, you don't manage as long as he has. Uh, players seemingly love him. Uh, is he is he different than AJ? Yes, everybody's different. But uh, Dusty is, is, uh, is the right guy for the job this time. As much as I, I, I do miss AJ a great deal. I uh, had a great relationship with him. He's a brilliant manager, in my opinion. And uh, I, I'm just praying every day that uh, he does get another chance. Uh, this was a perfect storm kind of thing that that came up, and he got caught in the middle of it. And and uh, it's unfortunate what happened to him and Jeff, uh, but we have to move forward. 
You mentioned earlier about how this was helping some guys out, Verlander and Peacock coming off injuries. And you have a couple guys coming off, off Tommy John surgery. Well, Jose Arquitty was a few years removed, but more recently with, with Lance McCullers Jr. How is Lance doing, and is he ready to roll? Yeah, he's doing great. He's uh, He's been throwing almost like the regular season. He's been throwing simulated games, uh, and, uh, and and just his – this has actually given him a chance to extend and get ready to roll. He'll, be, he'll come out of the shoot ready to roll. I mean, I would, I'd be surprised if he couldn't go five innings first time out. To be honest with you, there was much as throwing as he's doing. That's outstanding. And, uh, so no, he's he, he he's been good. And uh, you know, you, you come back from this, and uh, nobody wants to wish this on anybody, but uh, this break has actually helped him. So you you had the surgery, the ulnar collateral ligament reconstruction. That was in '78. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And uh, Tommy John had it for the first. He had it in '74. I believe so. Yeah, so, believe so, so it was still a relative. But actually, 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 they, actually, they did a better job on his because he won 288 games. <laughs> I didn't come close to that number. Okay. Hey, you did have, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you did have a slew of time in the big leagues, though. I mean, uh, yeah, five years yeah, is nothing was, to sniff uh, at. No, I understand that. It was it was a grind though because pitching in pain is never fun, and uh, so and and so it was. Uh, you know the, the late Doctor 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 Curlin and Doctor Job uh, performed the surgery, and uh, and uh, but now you see it uh, more often. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Sure. But the uh, procedure has helped a lot of young pitchers. How how has the the recovery changed from when you had it to when to when Lance, you know, went through that that experience? And can you kind of give us an idea of the recovery and, and what these guys have to do uh, to get back out there on the mound and perform at, at an elite level? Well, with me, my recovery was left on my own because I was not with the team when I had it done. Wow. So I drove myself up in my car from San Diego to Los Angeles, had the surgery, got in the car, and drove home. You don't have that type of uh, situation anymore. I'm guessing uh, Now not. we have uh, an entire program set up. Uh, it's usually 12 to 18 months rehab, uh, monitored by the teams and everything. And, and while it's become much more uh, – the, the operations become much more – prevalent uh and we as we, with each one we learn more and more um you know that just the i think the biggest thing that happens is that when, once a player has that surgery the rehab really takes them to another level and uh you often think that if you had trained as you did prior to the surgery you may not have happened to have the surgery but a lot of it a lot of it is poor movement patterns and workload a lot of different things enter into the stress on the elbow well, I know that you've spent a lot of times, a lot of time with regard to biomechanics and understanding the body and the delivery. And I realize most pitching coaches, to some extent, you know, uh, really take a hard look at that. Do you do you think that your experience as a as a pitcher, as a as a player, um, kind of puts you on that path to constantly researching and, and looking at different things about that subject? Yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated by it, and uh, one thing I do know is I don't know what I don't know, and and so I'm always looking at different uh, different techniques. Or tra- we have a wonderful training staff with the Astros, strength and conditioning. Um, you're looking at uh, at the way the body moves. And certain guys, why, why a Verlander and a uh, and a Grinke and a, and these certain pitchers, Maddox could stay Ryan could stay relatively injury free. You watch them, you use them as models. And you wonder where other guys maybe go off the tracks. And a lot of times it's just timing and rhythm. So a lot goes into this thing. I'm not going to guarantee that we can eliminate all injuries, but we'll try and mitigate them as best we can with the, with the information that we're gleaning each and every day. 
One guy not too far removed from Tommy John surgery is Jose Orkitty, and we're really proud of, of what he did last year. You go from the Hooks opening night starter to a guy who threw five shutout in, in game four of the World Series, you know, in his in his debut season in the big leagues. Uh, what 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 stands out to you about what what Jose did last year, and do you have any memories that come to mind about about Game Four in particular, maybe before the game, during or after that that uh, that you kind of look back on now? Well, you have to realize that uh, guys like Urquidy and uh, Roberto Osuna coming out of Mexico are very advanced in many regards into their pitching uh, program. That they. they by and large, the, the players down there are always competing against older players, so Urquidy had that advantage, uh, played on some, some national teams. And um, what I remember about, what I know about Urquidy is that uh, uh, he was almost like uh, a cold-blooded assassin. There wasn't, he wasn't too high, wasn't too low, maintained his composure extremely well, and uh, he just has a great repertoire of pitches. And if, when he finally got healthy and he got on a little roll, those five innings were special. Uh, I did have the opportunity to meet his mother the next morning. Cool. Uh, and she was, it was great to see her and uh, see the, the bond between uh, Jose and his mom. And, uh, and I know all of Mexico was proud of Jose. In fact, I do believe he got to visit the president of Mexico, uh, you know, coming from his hometown in Mazatlan. So uh, he's a big part of our future here and uh, really look forward to seeing him. And he's been, he's been throwing down in Mazatlan, in fact, I shipped him a dozen baseballs a couple about a month ago to make sure he had some quality <laughs> baseballs to throw with. So we, I want to make sure these guys are ready can when you we ex- come back. Can you expense that? I mean, how does that work? No, I didn't expense it. I just paid for it myself. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, speaking- it made it though. It took it took a little securitous route, and I, it didn't arrive when I thought it was. We had to kind of go back and find out when it got to Mexico City and how it got transferred over. So, oh, I bet that was the know. story. You mentioned the future, and uh, and certainly we saw a lot of that last year in Corpus Christi, and, and really the last couple of years. You know, and it's translated to what you've guys done in the big leagues, all the strikeouts. I've really been impressed with the young arms that that we've seen at Whataburger Field. Out of some of the guys that that you had a chance to look at at big league camp this spring, likes of Abreu, Abelak, Javier, and Oli Paredes. Anybody that jump out that that we need to you know, kind of circle and, and, and keep an eye on as to a guy that could make waves in the big leagues relatively soon? Well, I think all four of them can pitch in the major leagues. Uh, you know, I've had most of my time has been with Abreu, who I think was going to be a top of the rotation starting pitcher at one point in his career. Tremendous breaking ball. I mean, a tremendous breaking ball, yeah. great spin. Um, great mentality, the, uh, too. The Javier, yes. The Javier kid uh, I saw in spring training and uh, he has something that is very difficult to teach, which is deception, and it's not a—it's not really graded out in terms of spin rates and all the different things that people look at. But uh, very deceptive fastball, uh, hard for the hitters to pick up, and gets a lot of swing and misses, and you kind of shake your head and wonder why they missed it. Well, they—he's uh, just very deceptive. And then you have Belak, who is a very refined pitcher, uh, who I, I enjoyed very, very much. And then Inoli Paredes, uh, quite a quite a quite a spark plug. Live wire, enjoys life, enjoys pitching, great arm, um, and uh, if he gets his control down, everything will be it. So I like all four of those guys. I think the pitching in the minor leagues uh, under William Murphy, our coordinator, and the pitching coaches we have, Graham Johnson down there in, in, in Corpus, and, and Drew French, who we have in Round Rock, I think they do a tremendous job, and, uh, and I think we're well-served pitching-wise uh, moving into the next few years. Well, let's let's stick for a second with, with Javier, and uh, you mentioned the deception. 
Can you kind of quantify how he goes about doing what he does? I know I know it's hard to talk about layman's terms, but that that invisible. What what about that fastball really is the the key for him in terms of what he's doing from when the the ball leaves his hand? Well, hitters don't hit the radar gun. They hit what they see or they don't see. You often see somebody throwing 97 and getting whacked, and you see somebody throwing 89 and and getting swing and misses. And the way uh, the way Javier releases the ball, he kind of pushes it in an uphill type of uh, trajectory, so he has vertical break to the ball where it doesn't sink as much as other people's ball does. So it defies gravity a little bit better than than other pitchers. Although gravity is pulling down on the ball and everybody's pitch is gravity is an equal opportunity employer. Uh, he has a he has a throwing action that is, I guess, the only thing I could understand it if people have ever seen a softball pitcher throwing a rise ball mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times, that, that which makes uh, hitters very, major league hitters have a great difficulty hitting a softball pitcher who has a rise ball because because pit hitters are uh, are banking on their that experience drop, right? of that a, ball, that, a, yeah, that a ball released at a certain point is going to be here at a certain point. And so they have a tendency to swing under Javier's ball on a consistent basis and uh, it's just something that uh, that he's been blessed with, and uh, we'll try and ride it as long as we can. Uh, you brought up Graham Johnson and, and Bill Murphy. Uh, Graham was uh, the Hooks pitching coach last year and uh, a tremendous guy and really related to the players very well. Didn't really trust me at the outset. I, I can't say that I blame him. The year prior, we had uh, Bill Murphy, who was just a, a, is a, still a tremendous friend of mine, and I, I learned a lot uh, about pitching from him and talking to him and just a great guy to interact with, a great inter- interview as well. He was kind of a rock star in, in Corpus Christi. And uh, Strami, he's had a, a, a big-time rise in the organization already up to, to pitching coordinator. What makes Murph special in terms of being able to connect with guys and, and make the difference in their careers? Well, first of all, he's very, very smart, very intelligent, uh, very passionate about his trade, um, wants to learn all the time, has a, a great rapport with his pitchers. Uh, I mean, I, I've learned a great deal from Murph myself, and uh, uh, so much so that uh, I sent him out on some clinics that I was unable to take. And he's, every report I've got from him, when he does these clinics from Seattle to Toronto, uh, has been nothing but positive. So this is a major league pitching coach uh, in the immediate future. Um, so he, along with Josh Miller, my bullpen coach, uh, this organization, when I walk away, is going to be in great hands and and should be a really bright future from a coaching pitching coach standpoint. Uh, you know, uh, Murph's, uh, Murph has an open mindset, as does Johnson and, and Josh, and so it's a continual learning experience for them. And and uh, so it, it's everybody should be very happy that they're in good hands. All their young pitchers coming into the Astro organization know they'll be in good hands with these guys because they're not going to uh, stop uh, learning and trying to get better. Now, is it, will this be your 40th year as a coach? Do, I, do you keep track of stuff know. like that? I, 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 don't, I, so, I, I keep no track of that. Well, I, I saw that you, you made seven appearances uh, for Albuquerque in 81. Was that as the pitching coach in the Dodgers system at that time for Albuquerque, yeah, or were then, you on the back roster? Then, back then, no, no, we had 23-man rosters. Uh, we would play 23-man rosters. Sometimes we'd play 60 days in a row in the PCL, which is a very good hitters league. Southern Division of the PCL, and we had run out of pitching. And so Del Crandall, my manager, said, you're going to have to pitch. And uh, so I had to strap it on for a few times you made to a, get us through the You made a couple starts, season. too. That's 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 got to be a crazy experience. What was 
What do you recall from from that transition to to your pitching days to to going into to coaching? And was it an, an immediate next step for you? Did it click right away? Yeah, I want to do this. Did you know you wanted to be a coach? No, I wanted to pitch in the big leagues for 15 years. It just didn't work out. And uh, and so when your arm is trashed and you can't get anybody out, when you're 30 years old in the minor leagues, unlike today, it is time to find another occupation. And uh, so I was fortunate to land with the Dodgers, learned a great deal from a lot of great Dodger people. Um, still to this day, my favorite pitcher and, and mentor, Sandy Kovacs. Yeah. I uh, spent a lot of time with him. Uh, Don, the late Don Drysdale. I, I mean, I would sit in a room with, John Roseboro, Johnny, the late Johnny Padres, Larry Sherry, um, Sandy Koufax, guys like Ralph Branca, Joe Black, guys from yesteryear would come in. And uh, so it was a great learning experience. It's almost like doctoral work uh, in pitching and listening to these guys in the locker room following the day. So uh, that's where I got my start and uh, tried to carry that on. And then I've, you know, I studied other people that, that, that are, that have been associated with like Paul Nyman and, uh, Ron Wolford and Randy Sullivan, people that run academies in uh, in Texas and Florida. So it's an ongoing ongoing learning process for me still. So it's uh, you know I remember I remember pitching when Dell asked me to pitch. I had to start a it's kind of a funny story. I had to start a game in Portland against the Portland Beavers, and Willie Horton was playing at the time, the former Great Tiger, and he hit a ball so far off me that went out in left field. And the next day, and the next day we were playing a game in Vancouver. And uh, wet, rainy day, and I walked out to the right field line to run the pitchers, and they were all standing around looking at this baseball that was plugged in this muddy right field corner in Vancouver. And they said, "Strami, here's the ball that Horton hit." And we were in Vancouver, so that's the kind of things you remember as a as a pitching coach. Oh man! Well, you know, I'm I'm sure it's helped you out along the way that, that you haven't forgotten how difficult it is, right? I mean, this is this is tough to do. No, it's extremely tough. I will never. Yep, it is. Uh, it can be the best of times or the worst of times, and it, uh, so you have to take the good with the bad. It's, uh, you know, it's. Uh, I, put, I always put it this way: nobody in Vegas ever ever puts the odds on who's playing center field or right field. Right, it's about the pitcher. In Las Vegas, right? yeah. it's on who's on who's who's on the mound makes the makes the odds, and so that's how important this player is. Well, I hate to even ask this question, but I will. Um, if you if you had to kind of do a Cliff Notes version of of your thought process and how it's changed from when you started out coaching in 81 or even even as a pitcher how your philosophy has evolved over the years in terms of in terms of getting guys out in terms of max, maximizing what pitchers do best well i mean you know i i i learned early from the dodger organization that uh, they were a fastball curveball organization and i learned very early and this is where i ran into problems when i was with the cardinals when i was in their organization that uh, very early I learned that we needed to turn the strike zone upside down and make it a vertical, a vertical rectangle instead of a, a horizontal rectangle. And in and out, it changed and became up and down, became important for me. So when I came over to the Astros, it was a nice fit because we, we looked for riding, riding fastballs, hoppy fastballs, and we, we skewed the sinker and the sinker slider, and, and we went with more with depth uh, through the zone with some vertical attack stuff. That, not to discount the in and out, but... So things changed quickly. I was a little bit ahead of that. And what it, when I brought that to the Cardinals, uh, I was butting heads with some very, very strong, strong people, uh, Dave Duncan in particular, and uh, Yadier Molina. Uh, and so I survived that without getting fired. And then I got my great opportunity when Jeff Lunell brought me over to Houston and who had like-minded uh, ideas like I did. So 
you right. know, you, you, sometimes I was a little far, far out on the, on the game plank and, and it was some of my ideas. And, uh, so, but I, you know, I survived. Well, it, it, for the concept of, you know, making sure that, that, uh, that you attack up and down, is that because of the bat plane and, and the bat is, is in that in and out area yeah, the most that, after the, with the swing? Well, things have changed. If you remember when, uh, uh, Billy Bean, Billy Bean at one time, because guys were pitching low in the strike zone, Billy Bean went and found out every low ball hitter he could find and placed right. it in Oakland, and they were a beast. Okay, so you have to have to adjust. And now with the swing plane being what it is, the the up fastball plays and some different things play. The changeup has still remained the same, still a quality pitch, but uh, you have to adjust. And I'm sure the hitters will make adjustments, and we'll have to make a, uh, additional adjustments to counteract it. That's what's fascinating about baseball, the, the constant cat and mouse game and, and, and folks trying to find the, the edge. What what are some of the things that, that you're reading these days in terms of continuing education that, that you're looking to apply down the road a little bit? Well, I've been studying a guy by the name of Franz Bosch, who was a sprinting coach. Uh, he's from Holland and the Dutch. He uh, deals with the, uh, with, the, with the Dutch and uh, learning a lot from him on on sprinting technique and how, how you create uh, – power through the lower half and sprinting, which has some up, 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 it can apply to pitching. So Franz Bosch, as I'm looking at, I continue to look at, uh, I previously mentioned a guy named Paul Nyman, who probably had more influence on me than anybody in terms of looking at the athleticism of a pitcher. And, and we have a great, uh, we have a group every week. Uh, Murph puts this together where pitching coaches put together a presentation. So we have a Tuesday, Tuesday presentation where all the pitching coaches have a uh, presentation. And so it's a continual, it's like, continuing adult education on pitching during this time of crisis. Speaking with Astros pitching coach Brent Strom, are you in Tucson right now? Yep, yep, I'm in Tucson. It's 105 degrees outside, <laughs> yep. Well, I, I, I know you're a San Diego kid, but you've had a, a wonderful relationship with that city in Tucson. Can you tell us about that? Well, I'm not sure what you're referring to, but, uh, you know, I... Well, I you've lived up, there for, uh, was... what, you've lived there for a long time, right? Well, I've lived there, the reason I lived here is because I met my wife here. Right. And, uh... And so happy wife, happy life. And right. Excited to stay. You know, it's it's she must be a pretty special lady for for to me to leave, to to leave America's greatest city in San Diego to come live in the desert. Well, she she uh, is a so, former Miss America. So you're, I mean, you, you're a smart guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, so you know, it it's turned out well. You know, I was pitching coach for the Toros for a long time and enjoy this size town right now. Uh, we get a chance to travel a lot. Uh, we have three wonderful dogs who are the love of my life, two French bulldogs and an English bulldog. And they make me happy every day I see them. And, uh, so it's, uh, in fact, I'm looking at, uh, Virgil right now. One of my Uh-oh. Frenchies who's laying on the bed. Great name. And, by the way. uh, so it's, yeah, I got Virgil and Uno are my two Frenchies. And, uh, so I've had dogs my whole life. My wife and I are big dog lovers. And, uh, and so it's been, uh, it's been a, a good run here in Tucson. I've what? never been here at this time of the year. Because yeah. I've usually been gone, so it's it is a little, little unique. Odd. Yeah, see the heat popping up and and things going on, but uh, city's starting to open up a little bit, and uh, so we'll see what happens. You mentioned your time there with the Toros. What was your minor league experience like? What are some of the the memories that pop out from your time when you were just starting out in pro ball? Well, I started out from after I got done playing, and I realized it wasn't going to make get back to the big leagues. I became the AAA pitching coach for the Dukes. Spent about three years there, went to double-A San Antonio, and then I went with the Astros and became the pitching coach here in Tucson. Uh, won a couple cha- – won about three or four championships with Albuquerque and Tucson combined. Uh, you know, basically, I remember in Tucson having the likes of Shane Reynolds and the late Daryl Kyle and uh, 
Billy Wagner, yeah, Wagner and John Hudak yeah. and, and Todd Jones and and the list kind of goes on and on. Uh, and so a lot of good memories with those guys. Uh, watching them go to the big leagues and succeed was always a lot of fun. Um, you know, in Albuquerque, I had some great players that uh, came through there. Um, probably the most notable was Oral Hersizer as one of my pitchers. So it was a, a nice run in a, in a very difficult pitching environment, the Southern Division of the PCL, with the likes of Phoenix and Vegas and Tucson and Phoenix and uh, Colorado Springs and Albuquerque. So if you could be a pitching coach there and, and survive, then I think you can survive anywhere, to be honest with you. You were the third overall pick in the, the second phase of the 70 draft by the Mets. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 67, drafted twice uh, by the Giants and the Angels. Didn't sign. And in between your your draft years, you won a couple of national titles with USC. That That's a great lesson. And, and uh, you know, things happen for a reason, right? I mean, I'm sure that college experience really was a, a tremendous mark on, on your tenure and, and who you are right now. Yeah, I had a, I had one of the legendary coaches in college baseball in Rod Dato. Uh, I know the one thing that uh, when I did finally sign a pro contract with the uh, with the Mets uh, after the '70 College World Series and, and went to the California League and realized how difficult pro ball was uh, compared to, to uh, college baseball, uh, was prepared for it in the sense that I, I, I knew the fundamentals pretty well. So all the drills, all the different things that needed to be done. I had been well-versed in that. So it wasn't a big learning experience for me. And, and I went to an organization that was very pitcher, uh, had a pitcher, a pitcher friendly attitude in the Mets and learned from the likes of Seaver and Kuzman and, wow. and, uh, and those people. So it was a, uh, it was a great experience. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I will say despite a very mediocre major league career, not a day goes by when I don't think about my time in the big leagues. And I just wish that every, I know it's impossible, but I, I do wish, those that are really good after it and have tried really hard that they get to spend a little bit of time at the major league level and experience it because it's, uh, it's really something to walk out on a major league field and, and compete against the best in the world. Well, and, and to forever be known as a, as a big leaguer, uh, that's awfully special. Yeah. Before we let you go, yeah. I, I know that you've worked uh, for almost 20 years with the, uh, the international sports group. Can you tell us about that organization and, and what you've done uh, with those guys? Yeah, the International Sports Group, uh, years, years ago, the, the late Bill Arce, who was the baseball coach at uh, Claremont Mud out in California, was the first American to really go over to Europe and kind of bring the game to the Europeans, try and teach it. And uh, I was fortunate to get involved with them and was able to make a number of trips to Europe, um, which uh, then my, I would take my wife and we would make it a vacation in between the clinics. Sometimes we'd be gone for three weeks. And I think I've been to every country in Europe, save. Uh, Oh, possibly doing a clinic except for um, possibly Finland. Uh, but, you know, just going over there and meeting the people, trying to promote the game of baseball, still trying to do it. A number of friends uh, I've met over there uh, that I stay in touch with, and they come here to the States. So uh, it is basically just trying to promote the game, uh, trying to get them to uh, – it's like a fourth-tier sport in Europe, you know, behind track and field and obviously football and – and uh, different different other sports, basketball. But uh, who knows? One day we may be able to find a uh, like a, the Twins have a right fielder uh, from Germany who's quite a player. Hopefully, we could find a pitcher. It's just like when I went to Japan as the pitching coach for Team China for one of the WBCs. I thought to myself, how great would it be to find the Yao Ming of, uh-huh. of pitching and find a pitcher in China? And if there was one with the number of the population, there got to be a few more. Sure. And uh, but. Uh, if not, uh, 
it has not succeeded in that as of yet. So, uh, but maybe in the future. Well, when, when's Finland on the radar? Maybe in a, a few years. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. They have, they play a game there that's sim- is similar to baseball. It's called play, it's a thing called Pesapalo or Booball. It's a little bit different. If your if your listeners uh, type in Pesapalo or Booball, it's a uh, similar game to baseball, uh, but uh, you know quite different. But it might be interesting from them to look at that. But you know, right now Holland and Italy uh, have pretty strong teams. Uh, France has done well uh, as of late. Uh, uh, but the Dutch are still the the kingpins of. Uh, I think what happens is when you have players from Aruba and Curacao, I think that helps them a little sure. bit. Yeah. But um, but uh, it's uh, it's it, baseball is a uh, is a is a galvanizing sport that that uh, that I think people with some patience and take. It's a very difficult sport to to play, uh, but um, it has its rewards and and it's just been great to to meet these people and share share ideas with them. Uh, as we move forward well Astros fans very fortunate to have you there in the dugout and uh, we really appreciate uh, your time today and and look forward to seeing you guys hopefully back in action uh, very soon Astros pitching coach Brett Strom here on the Hooks Baseball Podcast Mr. Strom thank you very much again we really do appreciate it you know my pleasure and uh, you know tell your tell your fans we look forward to get going again we really appreciate your support for both us at the major league level and there in Corpus Christi well, that's going to do it for episode 12 of the Hooks Baseball Podcast. Big thanks once again to Astros pitching coach Brent Strom and Astros minor league strength coach Terrence Kennel. A couple of tremendous talents in the game. And please subscribe at your preferred podcast purveyor for the very latest on the Hooks Baseball Podcast. For Dan Reiner and all of us at Whataburger Field, this is Michael Coffin saying good day. 